This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we talk about the pandemic and its impact on the business of real estate. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today, we're heading south and hearing from our BizNow reporters in Texas. Kerry Panchuk covers Dallas and Christy Moffat is based in Houston. Texas went into lockdown in March, but then moved relatively quickly into a reopening phase. First, bars and restaurants were at 25% capacity and people were drifting back into the office. Then it was up to 75%, but in early June, cases began to rise and the reopening was paused. I started by asking Kerry what the reaction from the real estate community and the public has been like in the past few months. People were looking at those numbers in the beginning and they were completely optimistic that Texas had not been hit hard like the Northeast and other parts of the country. And then around early June, that's when we started to see the exponential growth. And it was a quick carve back, particularly on the restaurants and retail, but in those public places going back to 50% capacity, which we've been operating at since. Um, And one of the key things of that rollback was the restaurant and retail industry was hit hard again because they had a reopening, then they had to roll back to 50% capacity. Um, At that time, there were some analysts that were on BizNow calls that projected as many as 30 to 35% small restaurants could struggle in the state of Texas, struggle to even reopen, um, given all the things that have happened to them in the past few months. So I'd say right now, there is still a concern because our numbers, While there's some steadying in new cases and new infections, we are seeing higher numbers of daily reports and weekly reports of COVID deaths in Dallas County, which is Dallas and Collin County, which is many of our other major north suburban counties that have office retail and a a, a strong residential focus. Christy, give us a sense of Houston. I mean, paint us a picture of how that uncertainty is playing out in your market. Like Dallas, things were were looking pretty good here for a while. You know, we didn't have many cases given the population here. We had very low deaths. It was really viewed as a horrifying thing that was unfolding on each of the coasts. But, you know, down here in Texas, people felt pretty safe. Again, most people here drive. Public transport is not as big of a deal as it is in the Northeast. And for the most part, I would say Houstonians felt pretty good. And then of course we hit Memorial Day weekend. We started to see some pretty rapid, I would say, spikes. Numbers have started to come down a little bit. They are still far higher than where we'd like them to be. But you know, the city is, has definitely started taking it more seriously, I feel, since those numbers became very elevated. And, you know, office occupancy, for example, is, is also very low. I think, you know, now that we're five months in, most workplaces have now figured out their technology. Most people are working from home. Um, I actually spoke to Bob Yuri, who is the head of the downtown district um, for downtown Houston last week. And he told me that most of the downtown office buildings are sitting at 10% or less occupancy right now. It sounds like a lot like New York. I mean, offices are legally allowed to be open and they have been for a little while now, but very few people are actually going into the office. And obviously it's summer and people like to be out of the city, but it's extraordinary compared to other years. And there is a widespread expectation that a lot of people won't come back this year at all. Kerry, give us a sense of um, how the public is reacting and how real estate businesses are thinking about the future. If there's talk about uncertainty and there's talk about potential 
more shutdowns and changing of the rules and what they can do. What are bars and restaurants and offices um, saying to you in terms of how they want to prepare? You know, one of the reactions that we got at the beginning from um, retail brokers was if you did not quickly scale up to do mobile delivery or at least get um, a partner with DoorDash or Grubhub or one of the other third party providers, you are going to be stuck. And so I think right now um, they've already turned that corner. If you're going to survive, you're, you already have those other components built into your retail capacity. How the public's responding is I do think that there is this push-pull that you start to see play out a little bit of should we close should we scale back even more um, to get everything deflated so much in terms of new cases and deaths that you know then you can do a full reopening and not have to have this open and close Um, one thing I read that was interesting since Texas and Florida are two of those hot zone states where there were increases there was a Federal Reserve representative from the Federal Reserve Bank of Minnesota who said something along the lines of he'd like all those hot zones to actually close for a few months, whatever it takes to to get to the numbers that New York got to when it did its full shutdown for that period of time. And they think that would actually be better economically to do a full reopen at once once you actually kill the majority of the cases and really push COVID down. Their concern is that if you keep having, having the fear open, close, cases going up, cases going down, and then they, or you can see a continual escalation, it doesn't really bring the confidence back into the retail office, um, multifamily, you know, in public spaces. So I do think you're starting to see some sentiment, um, and you see even some political sentiment of, you know, some people want to just keep it the way it is and let it fade out. But you're seeing some people say maybe we should have been closed. Maybe there should be um, smaller capacity numbers. And I think you'll see that play out as long as the numbers don't go down to a level where they were in the beginning when people felt safer. What about you, Christy? Is, is in, in Houston, are people, is there that kind of divide as well where some people want a rollback and some people want to leave it as it is? Well, yes and no. Um, I think it really just depends on who you talk to. Um, Restaurants and bars have taken an enormous hint, obviously, um, over the past few months. And I know that, you know, through some of the small business owners that I've spoken to, um, most have very quickly pivoted to doing, like Kerry said, um, online and deliveries. But again, that's no guarantee. You're still not able to necessarily do that long-term and survive. They have recently moved to approve dining in uh, outdoor spaces, um, particularly uh, converting parking lots. And then, of course, just uh, I've heard personally of bars looking to get food licenses to convert into restaurants because the future is so uncertain right now that a lot of a lot of business owners are trying to figure out how they can pivot and how they can survive. So I think that's a trend we're definitely going to see more of, where more and more bars are going to put the money and the effort into converting into restaurants uh, just to try and make it through. Obviously, every office market in the world has been really affected by this virus. But in Houston, there's something of a double whammy. It's also been affected by the um, energy sector downturn. Can you explain a little bit about how people have analysed that in the last few months? Just for a little bit of context, um, Houston's last energy downturn began at the end of 2014 and it lasted through 2016. And oil prices fell and the industry shed something like 100,000 jobs. 
So, you know, at that time, a lot of energy companies had a lot of pain and they ended up tightening their belts, which meant that they never hired back all the people that they laid off last time. And as a result, office occupancy across the city has never fully recovered since then. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to the current energy downturn. Uh, that was already evident um, towards the last of... Uh, towards the end of last year, which is, you know, even before the pandemic um, became a thing. Uh, and that was really reflecting the fact that the U.S. was producing higher oil and gas volumes than ever before. You know, we are, we are completely awash in oil and gas. We've been producing enormous amounts. And in order for us to keep doing that, we have to export it. So when the pandemic struck, it actually depleted a lot of the global demand we typically see um, from major energy consumers. And I'm talking like airlines, cruise ships and manufacturers like in China. And so, you know, when you when you have all of this oil and gas and you have all of all of your demand go away, it leaves you in a really tough situation. And so, you know, and, and other oil producing countries had the same issue. So what that means long story short, is that billions of dollars ended up getting wiped from the stock market and energy bankruptcies started and have been going in full swing now for, for months. Um, they are continuing to increase. Um, you know, every single day I get notifications of the latest oil company uh, to file for bankruptcy. Um, you know, and so all of that, when it comes to Houston's office sector right now, um, basically, these, these oil and gas companies have signed long leases. They're not easy to break necessarily, um, which means there's a chance we could see sublease space enter the market. It, it's not there yet. It tends to be something that is a delayed reaction, but I think it's coming. Um, you know, during the second quarter, we did see office vacancies rise. Um, I believe they went up to something like 19.2% uh, up from 18.7% during Q1 and that's according to Addison Young. So um, sublease space actually decreased um, but that was mostly due to lease expirations. So that square footage just reverted straight back to direct lease space. Um, the upside, if there is an upside, is that Houston's office market was potentially less impacted than other U.S. cities during the uh, second quarter because those energy companies had already begun downsizing. Um, you know, that downsizing that began in, you know, 2014, that downsizing um, that, you know, companies had sort of preempted and began in 2019, um, you know, the, the energy sector was already shedding space. Um, and so when the pandemic hit and everything got amplified, um, they were actually in a better position than they might have otherwise been, which sounds strange, but it's, it's the main reason why we didn't see such a dramatic change in percentage of occupancy during the second quarter. Kerry, tell us a little bit about how Dallas's office market is going. Is there that anxiety, that looming sense that something's ahead? Because I know in New York, everyone's saying sublease space is coming. It is going to come hard. Um, it's not there yet, but it is going to happen. 
We actually um, just looked at a co-star report this week and also spoke to Transwestern about this. They are seeing an uptick in subleasing activity in DFW already. Now, would we say it's a dramatic surge? No, Um, but it was an uptick enough in second quarter and then also in the beginning of the third quarter. um, The numbers that they're already looking at show that there's greater demand, an increased demand, a noticeable demand in tenants, office tenants in DFW looking for subleasing space. So what does that signify? Um, Lack of certainty on when they're going to need an office for longer than 12 months. So the benefit of a sublease is maybe you go in as a subtenant and you're in for only six months, 12 months. You don't have the same commitment. There's also um, price reductions or better deals that come with that. So you're not, you you definitely have a better bargaining power as a subtenant in some aspects. So for someone to choose that um, path of subtenancy um, or subleasing, I should say, is in itself uncertainty. It's tenants saying, yeah, we need office space, but we're not committing to a full lease. We're going to go grab someone else's sublease um, for a period of time because we don't want to make the full commitment. So that shows ambiguity, uncertainty, fear over longer term commitments. It also can be indicative of, and this is you know why um, analysts in the market are looking at that uptick, it can be indicative of this idea that our tenants themselves struggling and so they're just trying to get rid of the space. Early on in the DFW market, um, many businesses benefited from PPP loans. Um, Government stimulus kept a lot of people going. So then there was the question of what are going to be the band-aids or the signifiers of economic distress when, you know, PPP dies down and when people don't have that aid. So the question I think on the sublease market is they're going to want to see, does it continue to increase second, third quarter, fourth quarter, how much? And as that happens, is it showing, one, that the tenants are in trouble, so they're having to sublease out the space as a Band-Aid, and then two, that obviously puts the landlords in a situation because not only are they dealing with trying to lease existing space, but now they're competing with subleased space in the market. One of the things that people have talked about a lot here, and I think in a way it's a I guess a way to kind of trying to make sense of ambiguity and uncertainty is trying to explain things. And one of the big things in New York has been, oh, there's going to be a huge rise in suburb space. People are going to be moving their offices to the suburbs. People are going to want to live in the suburbs. I have heard on the other hand, some people say, no, the suburbs are soul sucking. No one wants to live there. So is that same conversation happening in Texas? I mean, is that something that people say in Dallas, Kerry? Um, Well, in Dallas, you know, we are so suburban focused that some people have said the next suburb is Oklahoma. That's how far we build (laughs) north. Six months ago, you could go to a BizNow event or you could talk to an analyst and someone would say the millennials and the young people love the urban areas and the future is mixed use development in urban areas where people can go down and get their coffee and walk to work or take an Uber and they're not going to have cars and urban sprawl. Everybody's going to rebel against that. Um, Fast forward. Forward, and now everybody's speaking in a extremely the other way. And I would say maybe don't go to extremes because extremes is how we, we, we pigeon ourselves in. But now it's, hey, isn't it great that we have urban sprawl and everybody drives a car to work and everybody lives in the suburbs? But we never really stopped being a suburban-focused office market. Um, data for you, um, this is from Commercial Cafe. 
73% of DFW office is in the DFW suburbs, which means we're not strong in terms of urban focus in general. Although there has been a great deal of urban development downtown, there's been a lot of quality development in, in Uptown and Deep Ellum. I don't think anyone thinks that there's not going to be law firms and certain type of trophy office class tenants that still want those prestigious downtown Dallas um, urban area addresses. Will downtown ever go away? Will the urban areas ever go away? No, there's been a lot of quality development. I think a lot of the corporate relocations that are looking at this area are going to be looking at suburban office because they build a lot of those quality products in suburban office to mirror the quality that you would see downtown. And to some extent, you can get the land um, in the suburban areas that you can't get downtown to do your own, you know, headquarters builds like Toyota did in Plano. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that we heard people saying that urban was the place to go. Um, I'm not saying I'm not going to go to the extreme and say everybody's going to escape the city, but there's definitely going to be a strong um, emergence of suburbs. Christy, there's been a lot of industrial activity, so it kind of looks like a bright spot uh, for Houston. Is supply and demand in step? So I can tell you right now that um, Houston's industrial sector is definitely Industrial and multifamily are really the two bright spots. But if we're looking just at industrial, um, you know, we have the Port of Houston, which is a massive boon most of the time. Um, when, the, when the pandemic caused the manufacturing shutdowns in China and, and everywhere else, um, the flow of goods into Port Houston actually slowed a lot. Um, I think we saw something like a 2.3 decline year over year, and that's and that's uh, according to Collier's International's um, latest Seaports report. Uh, but you know, the Gulf Coast is also famous for being a massive hub for petrochemicals and for the production of plastics. Um, so basically, despite everything going on. Um, Houston's petrochemical uh, exports contributed to a 9.3% growth in, out, in outbound cargo um, year over year in sort of the first half of this year, which is, which is amazing, you know, given everything going on. Um, you know, and obviously as the economy improves, the flow of goods to the port will improve as well. Um, and so that comes full circle to industrial because, um, you know, there is a lot of industrial property around the port and there has been uh, apparently a increase in demand for industrial warehouse space around the port because, you know, when, when the pandemic first kind of really hit the US, one of the first places to feel it was the supply chain. Um, you know, a lot of companies have moved to just-in-time delivery um, which really doesn't cut it when your supply chain gets completely disrupted. And so a lot of companies are now looking to buy or rent warehouse space um, around the port to, I guess, stockpile some of their, um, their products because, you know, there is a risk that the supply chain could be disrupted again. And so, you know, um, there is definitely an increase in interest in, uh, in, in obtaining real estate around the port. Now, on, on, the, on the bigger scale of things, you know, Houston 
Houston's been undergoing massive industrial growth um, for the last 10 years. And, you know, um, even only a month or so ago, we had Amazon announce a new 800,000 square foot um, distribution fulfillment warehouse, you know, out, out in Richmond, which is sort of, uh, sort of to the, the southwest of, of uh, downtown Houston. But, you know, I mean, there are a lot of really big warehouses being built here, especially along I-10, um, out towards Katy. Um, it's a major transportation corridor. So there's a lot of activity on the industrial side in Houston. Um, in fact, there's so much activity that we're actually sort of facing a short-term supply glut. So... <laughs> You know, we're we're looking at um, millions of square feet due to come online uh, this year. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of companies that are still kind of waiting to make a move. So, you know, I've, I've spoken to various industry experts and brokers who've told me that it could take anywhere up to two years for all of that new um, product coming online this year to be fully absorbed by the market. Um but, you know, at the same time, like, despite that, people seem extremely optimistic about the future of industrial. It's definitely an asset type that a lot of folks are um, flocking to. You know, there are people who have a lot of um, money that they've saved up or that they've raised, and now they're looking to deploy those funds. And, you know, when, when you're looking for a safe, quote unquote, I should say, safe asset type, right now um it does seem that industrial is viewed as one of those i would agree with christy that um china created supply chain disruption for everyone um but i think that that also created an interest in going and looking at the local level what does the supply chains look like if we have to be more storage centric in the u.s you know do we need more industrial to store um you know one of the examples was toilet paper people's toilet paper ran out and the industrial market said we realized there's a whole market to have just places where toilet paper is stored and that where people are going to backfill here in the states and not rely on shipping from other areas which creates more capacity and demand for industrial warehousing but it also creates this idea of creating a supply chain and a, a backstop for your industrial market um, in the U.S. And I think Dallas felt really well positioned or DFW felt really well positioned to start promoting itself and taking advantage of that. Speaking of well positioned, I mean, I feel like I hear all the time uh, how from my New York City sources and the people I speak to up here about how people want to leave New York. They want to... Um, they want to get away from the politics. They want to get to a business-friendly state. Is Texas going to reap the rewards, do you think? Is that the narrative going on down there? Um, well, I think that DFW has been selling that narrative for several years, even before COVID. So, um, And I, I do think that there's a truth that we have had corporate relocations from California. I mean, obviously, Charles Schwab last year going to um, – going to Westlake, um, basically also Toyota several years back, putting a headquarters in, you know, Plano, Texas, um, those suburban markets that have high quality office build. I mean, I think we have already had a business friendly state where um, the economic development departments of these cities have been very proactive in reaching out to states where there's high income taxes, maybe not as corporation friendly, and really trying to woo them to Texas. So when this happened, when COVID happened, I think, particularly before Texas had an increase in COVID cases, I think the word 
word on the street was, well, this will benefit us. Even more people want to come here because now the things that we used to get cited for when we lost corporate um, relocations, particularly when we lost the Amazon headquarters too, was no public transportation. Well, now everyone's saying, oh, they don't want public transportation because of COVID. So we're, we're well positioned. So we're on top. Um, you know, whether we are or not, um, I think that certainly in regards to California, Texas has already been aggressively pursuing that for years. And I, I continue to think that they will. Um, I also am hearing a narrative that they think other states, you know, where people are tired of density, where they're a little bit concerned about public transportation, where they want no state income taxes and more affordability, that they'll look at Texas. So I think that narrative has been out there. Um, and I think you're just going to see the COVID factor be added into their sales pitch. Christy, have you noticed that pitch stepping up? <laughs> I don't know about stepping up, but I will say that um, the the cliche of Californians relocating to Texas is definitely a real thing. Um, and in Houston, you know, one of our big selling points is affordability. Um, you know, in California, you know, you might spend a million dollars to build a, you know, to build or to buy a house. Whereas, you know, here in Texas and in Houston, you know, in the, in the suburbs, you can get something pretty big, you know, you, you get more bang for your buck. And so that's definitely a selling point. Um, again, with the master plan communities, uh, you know, so here in Houston, we are actually seeing the relocation of the Howard Hughes Corporation, which used to be headquartered in Dallas, but is actually transitioning to Houston. Um, but they have a number of very large master plan communities here in Texas. And um, one of those communities uh, called Bridgeland is uh, sort of in the, in, in the northern um, the northern side of Houston. And it is uh, it actually entered the top 10 best-selling master-planned communities list last month. Uh, despite the pandemic, they've had record sales. People like the idea of not uh, paying state income tax, number one. Um, they like the idea of warm weather all year round. Um, they like the idea of being able to buy a 3,000 square foot house for something that where they don't have to sell their children, you know? Like it's... It's an attractive prospect, I think, to folks that live on the coasts. You know, whether or not New Yorkers want to move to Houston is one thing, but if the corporate relocations happen, the people will come. Sounds like you're on board, Christy. <laughs> you're on Team uh, Texas. Houston has the effect of uh, making you root for it, you know, because we're, we're, we're a very big city, you know, people always list... New York, LA, and Chicago, and then they often forget that like Houston population-wise is like right there. And, and you know, after covering energy and also now covering commercial real estate, um, it's just, it's really interesting to see just how aggressively the city is trying to transform itself. Uh, Kerry Panchuk in Dallas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Miriam, it's been fun being here. And thank you so much, Christy Moffat in Houston. Thanks to both of you for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Miriam, and it's always a pleasure to talk to another Aussie.